And good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Well, it's probably no secret that I am a Thomas Merton fan. If you've been around here for any time, that you know that uh, Thomas Merton was uh, one of my formative mentors. You know, I wanted to be Thomas Merton at one point. You know, just just everything about him. And uh, in 1966, he got a call from Abraham Heschel. You know, you may know have heard the name before, famous rabbi and theologian who called him at his abbey in Gethsemane, Kentucky, and asked him if he would take part in a writing project that was for Time Life Books. <laughs> Merton said something kind of catty. Actually, he didn't take the call. He got the message later, but it's something like, you know, he really didn't want to be involved in any fancy project for some big mass media thing, you know, that was kind of Merton. But um, he was talked into it, and even though the project actually tanked, it was for Time Life Books, um, the, the essay that he wrote that was supposed to be the opening of this book on the Bible and, and, and its contents and how to read it and so on and so forth uh, ended up being published all by itself. So it's a little skinny book, just a published essay called Opening the Bible. And in it, he makes, right in the first couple of paragraphs, he makes this statement. He says, the Bible without question, is one of the most unsatisfying books ever written. <laughs> Unless the reader comes to terms with it in a very special way. And when I read that, it was just perfect for me. And I don't know about you, but haven't you ever read something that was kind of unsatisfying in the Bible? Something that just kind of hits you in the face, and you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? How could this possibly be in the Bible? How could this possibly describe the God that Jesus is all about? And then all the seeming contradictions, and all the wars, and all the bloodshed, and all the intrigue, and everything that's going on. It's like, what is going on with this book? Now, if you have never been unsatisfied by the Bible, if you've never been affronted and perplexed and astonished and disoriented and dismayed, then I would probably say maybe you're not reading it closely enough. Maybe you're not really letting yourself move into it. Maybe you've just allowed yourself to accept what other people have told you about the book and haven't really dug in for yourself to see what's really there. Because I think he's absolutely right. Until you come to terms with the Bible in a very special way, it is very difficult to make sense of, and especially to make spiritual sense of. So I suppose the question then becomes, what is that way? How do we do that? How do we approach the Bible? And unfortunately, I'm going to have to cop out a little bit here and say, well, that's up to you to find out. It's up to each one of us to find that way, to find that relationship with the Word. But at the same time, there are some general principles that we can look at. And I think the two most important are... First of all, and foremost of all, the Bible is a spiritual book. The Bible is trying to get across spiritual principles, spiritual experiences even, concepts. And so the physical details that are related in the Bible are really there only to convey the spiritual material. Now, don't read me wrong and, and think, oh, Dave's saying that the physical stuff really didn't happen, you know, that it's not accurate. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that if we are going to give priority to what the book is all about, if we're really going to spend all that time reading the Bible, how much time do we spend thinking about and trying to prove the physical details when really what is important in the Bible is primarily trying to get across are the spiritual principles, 
the ones that can really move in and change our lives. And so to understand the Bible that way, to understand its primary purpose, I think is part of that special way that if we can come to terms with, it's going to change our relationship with the book. Or it's going to change our relationship with the material in there. And the second, I think, major principle is, is that the Bible doesn't do our spiritual work for us. All the Bible does is point in a direction. You know, sometimes I've heard the Bible called the owner's manual for life. I, I didn't really understand that when I first heard it 30 years ago. Now I don't really like it, but that's up to you. But if we look at the Bible like an owner's manual, if we look at the Bible like the teacher's answer key to the test, somehow we can get all the answers in advance and so that we can ace the test. If we look at it that way, we're going to have a problem with the Bible. Because what the Bible is functioning more like is just a compass. It's pointing true north. Or maybe like a road map or a map that shows us the lay of the land, gives us perspective, gives us a, a, a higher look at, at what is going on so that we can find our way through. But it doesn't do the work for us. We can never think that we can get the answers and abdicate the journey to something or someone else. It is our journey to take and only our journey to take. And so just those two alone if we can use those to reorient the way that we approach the Bible and stop asking the Bible questions that it has no intention of answering for us, then we can start to move into a new relationship that will allow us to see the depth of meaning that is really there. And what I wanted to do was look at a couple of really unsatisfying stories in the Bible and see where they can lead us to something that is completely relevant for where we are today and what we're, what's going on in our world and in our life today. In Genesis 22, we get the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, has that ever given anyone a problem or a pause, that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his own son? I mean, I hope so. Now, the backstory, a little bit of backstory here. Abraham is promised that he's going to be a father of a great nation, that his descendants are going to be like the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. But he's really old, and he doesn't have a son. How is this going to be possible? He and his wife, Sarah, are both old. She's past childbearing years anyway, so how is this going to happen? They know that God's promise should come back, but they don't know how. And so they do a little machinations there. They, uh, they, uh, Sarah gives him Hagar, or Hagar, his, uh, her handmaiden, and he has Ishmael by her, but that doesn't work out so well. And then, miraculously, the angel comes and tells him, you're going to have a son. And they're both laughing, and so when the son finally came, as of course he always does, they named him Yitzhak, which means laughter. This is the miracle child. This is the child that was born when they were around 100 years old, way past childbearing years. This is the child of promise. This is the child that was going to make all those promises come true. This is the child on which Abraham hung all of his faith and hope in God's promise that he would be the father of this multitude. And then God asks him to sacrifice him. Now, he stops him before he does, but what kind of God does that? What kind of God plays these kinds of games? Gives the child, takes the child away? What is going on with this? How are we supposed to understand 
this God is a cruel God that requires human sacrifice. What's going on here? Okay, hold on to that unsatisfying point right there. Moses. <laughs> Moses is the one who brings his people out of Egypt. Moses is the one who for 40 years does everything that God asks him to do. Moses is the one who for 40 years leads this people, this complaining, difficult people, out of Egypt and supposedly into the promised land, again, where they were promised. And because they don't believe the report of the good spies that go in, they end up for 40 years struggling through the wilderness. And at various intervals, the people rebel, and Moses has to bring them back and be the conduit between them and God, and all these things are going on. A year before the end of their 40 years in, in, in the wilderness, the people are complaining again because they're in a very arid, arid region and there is no water, and they're complaining, why did you even bring us here? And they're going through all of the complaining that they normally do, and Moses is pretty much had it by this time. So he and Aaron go into the tent of meeting and they pray to God and God says, okay, go out to the rock and tell the rock to give water and we'll water the people and we'll water their herds. Okay. Moses goes out, but he's pretty upset. He's pretty ticked at this point. And he says, okay, you rebellious people, you know, you want that we should bring water from this rock? Notice that he uses we. In fact, I should probably read it because that was what I had planned to do, right? At um, Numbers, where are we at? Oh, no, I wasn't going to read it. That's something else I'm going to read. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Okay. He says, you rebels, is it that we should bring water from the rock? And he strikes the rock twice, and the water gushes forth. Now, later, when they are actually within sight of the promised land, Moses is led up to the top of Mount Nebo, and he is shown the whole stretch of the land from the, eastern, from the Western Sea, the Mediterranean, to, to the uh, Jordan River. And God tells him, you're never going to enter this land because of your sin at the waters of Meribah, your sin in this particular instance. Now, what was it that Moses did that was so bad? There are so many reasons that scholars give as to what Moses did that was really so bad is that we really don't know. I mean, he did what God asked him to do. Now, he did say, is it that we should bring the water from the rock, meaning probably we, he and Aaron, and maybe taking God's place. He struck the rock twice, probably in anger. He was just supposed to speak to the rock. But really, does that punishment fit the crime? After 40 years of traveling and leading these people because of that one thing, he doesn't get to go into the promised land, and he dies on top of that mountain and is gathered to his fathers. Hang on to that little unsatisfying story for a second. Jesus, at the end of, the, of John's gospel, just as he's going to the cross, he is telling his friends in the Last Supper, you know, John is great, Last Supper lasts four chapters, and so it's this long, drawn-out thing. But in there, he's telling them everything that's going to happen. He's telling them that he's going away. The disciples are freaking out. Thomas and Philip are asking him questions and throwing all these darts at him. Everyone is freaking out, and he says, hold on a minute. You know, just, just relax. It is to your advantage that I go. Because then the helper will come. Helper, the paraclete, you know, the comforter, the advocate. It's translated many different ways. It's to your advantage that I go. Because then the helper will come. They didn't understand it. 
They were still freaking out. They didn't. Why does he have to go? He has been our leader. Why doesn't he continue to be our leader? He's just throwing us to the wolves at this particular point. How are we supposed to make sense? How are we supposed to make spiritual sense? How are we supposed to get some satisfaction here when these stories leave us in these strange places where God doesn't seem to make any sense, where God seems to fly in the face of the kind of God that Jesus tells us that he's supposed to be? Loving, compassionate, understanding. How can we find a principle that is going to point us where we need to go and point us in a direction that is going to give us this kind of sense? Now, I don't usually spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, but I'm going to this morning. Have you ever heard the name Hezekiah? That's not the way that it would be pronounced in, in Hebrew, but Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the 13th, there's that number again, the 13th king of Judah, the southern kingdom. The kingdom was united under Saul, David, and Solomon, and then it split. And he was the 13th king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you have read much in Kings and Chronicles, you know that Israel did not have a good track record with kings. They were all pretty rotten, pretty difficult, and always all over the place in, in respect to how they treated God, how they worshipped God. But here is this oasis in the middle of the desert of all these Judean kings. Hezekiah in Chronicles and Kings, everywhere he's spoken of, he's spoken of as a righteous king. And he was the son of one of the worst kings, Ahaz, who when the Assyrians were coming into the area and they, they bludgeoned the northern kingdom of Israel, defeated it and carried everyone away in slavery, he sold out to the Assyrians. He made a deal with them, which maybe wasn't so bad. He became basically a vassal state to Assyria, and he was paying tributes to them, paying taxes to them to keep them from running over the land as they did in the northern kingdom. But he did more than that. He basically fell in love with their culture. He traveled to Babylon. He loved what he saw there. He was so enamored and so won over by their culture that he brought it back home again, along with their gods and along with their form of worship. And he built altars in the Babylonian style, even in the temple itself. And so all of this, of course, is making the prophets crazy. And, uh, but he dies, and his son takes over, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah goes through a period of reform, and he reforms everything that his father had done and the kings before him. And it's a religious reform, and it's a cultural reform, and he tries to clean everything up from top to bottom. If you take a look here at, if you can, at 2 Kings chapter 18, starting at verse 3, here's what the, the, the scripture says about it. Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord. According to all that his father, David, had done, he was in the line of David, he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. So he's going through these reforms, and the first thing he does is go and break down the high places. Now, what are the high places? The high places were remnants, most often, of Canaanite altars, Canaanite places of worship that were generally on top of hills or had some elevation or built on platforms, probably where the name came from, Bemah in, in, um, in Hebrew, or Bemot would be the plural. 
But these high places were rural places of worship. They were places that people went to to sacrifice and to worship when they couldn't get to the temple. So they were scattered all throughout the land. But they were as much a function of foreign gods as they were Israel's gods. In fact, they were originally for foreign gods. And so the people, especially under these kings, were having this mixture of religions between the foreign god worship and and what we've typically called pagan worship, but then also the worship of their own god, but with images. The columns that he talks about, or the pillars, were like totems. They were carved pillars that were tributes to God. And they had erected those, both in the name of Yahweh and also in the name... They were indiscriminately worshipping the whole pantheon of gods. Yahweh, in a sense, just became one more god within the pantheon. And the Asherah poles were either actual trees, sometimes it's translated groves in, in in some of the versions... But they were tributes to the god Asherah, which was the consort of El, one of the Canaanite gods. And she was a goddess of fertility and all this. And so some of the the, uh, commentators, they talk about these high places as actually being sort of resorts. There are places that you could go and you could hang out for a while. And there was ritual and temple prostitution going on and all sorts of things happening in these high places. And so you can imagine... They were kind of like the casinos are today. They were pretty popular places. And Hezekiah comes in and tears them all down, raises them to the ground. He knocks down all the pillars. He cuts down the Asherah poles or the trees, and he just changes everything. You can imagine he wasn't too popular a guy doing all of this because the people had become acculturated to it. But he doesn't stop there. Now he breaks in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Now, if you're not familiar with that one, you know, the one that is talking about Nehushtan, let's look at Numbers 21, verse 6, and just get a little backstory here. This is where the people again were complaining and doing their usual thing. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people during their 40 days in the wilderness, right? And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, and because we have spoken against the Lord and you, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. This would be a pole with a little cross piece. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, any person, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay. So this is another weird story, isn't it? Another kind of strange story. Strange way for God and Moses to heal. But they saved the serpent. Now think about it. This was hundreds of years before the time of Hezekiah. They had this serpent. They had the second set of tablets. They had the rod that Aaron had had used and had budded. They had those things in the Ark of the Covenant, and they had this serpent. Hezekiah breaks the serpent into pieces. Can you imagine? Moses himself made the serpent, and he breaks it in pieces. Now, the serpent was something that came from God. The serpent was something that healed the people. What in the world is he doing? And can you imagine the impact? That would be like us going and burning the Declaration of Independence or something. Something that was so cherished that was in the hands of our forefathers. There are very signatures on it to destroy that. Why would he do that? 
The clue is right there in the end. He broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan, which just means something made of copper or a copper serpent. If they were burning incense to it, if you remember the second commandment, which says there will be no graven images, over time, the image of God, something that is really good in the beginning, even something that had such an essential part in their history, becomes an idol, becomes the image that stands between the people and the God that it is meant to represent, the God that it is meant to remember they were burning incense to it. Now, were they still thinking of their God? We, we can't know. But for Hezekiah, in his zeal to reform and purify and bring Israel back into connection with God, it was a bridge too far. It had turned into idol worship, especially when you connected it with all the other types of worship that were going on with the poles and the columns and the high places. He saw it as one more thing, and he got rid of it. He eliminated it from their culture. This is something that we really need to think about, what he, what he was doing here and why it was so important for him to do it. Over time, the best of our intentions, the things that we try to create, will come to stand between us and what those things originally represented or what they meant. And in spiritual issues, it takes us off. It takes us away from the actual true connection with our God. Hezekiah understood this. There's a great story about Lao Tzu. And I don't know if you know who Lao Tzu was. He was the, uh, the semi-legendary founder of the Taoist school. It's a ph philosophical school in ancient China. He's usually dated to around the 6th century BC. Actually, same time as Hezekiah um, in China, of course. But Lao Tzu was this, obviously, an elderly sage in, in, in China and, and greatly respected and greatly admired and had a following but he refused to write anything down. He would not write any of his teachings down. He would not establish a set of teaching. Now, Confucius, who was a contemporary, wrote everything down and created these huge, they're called analects, and very complicated system of ethics and morality and how people were supposed to work. Lao Tzu would write nothing down, refused to write anything down, because he was afraid that if he did, his teachings, his writings, that were supposed to be heart-to-heart, -heart, that were supposed to be fluid and working in a person's life, would become static, would become calcified. That the, the, the word that became in stone, set in stone, would no longer convey the truth when it is just living and active in your heart. Kind of sound familiar here? But the great story is that when he was 90 and he knew that he was getting ready for, for death, he told all his followers, he said, it's good to live in community when you're alive, but when it's time to die, it is best to go off and be by yourself and prepare in solitude for what is coming. And so he said, I got I to gotta leave. I'm, I'm, I'll bid you goodbye. And he starts leaving for the Himalayas because he was going to go up into some kind of hermitage, I suppose, in the mountains. And uh, the people are following him because they don't want to let him go. And then the story says that they followed him for hundreds of miles, but finally he persuaded them to turn around and go home. And as he's crossing the border into the area where he needs to go, there's a border guard there who stops him 
and imprisons him. He was also a disciple and a follower of Lao Tzu. But he says, you cannot go any further because you have a debt to write a book for all humanity and do not leave without leaving your teachings for us. And so he said, you are going to stay here until you write your book. You cannot pass. And so thus imprisoned, Lao Tzu, for three days, wrote what is now the Tao Te Ching, which is his book, and, and left it. But he did not want to write anything down for the same fear that the second commandment tells us have no graven images of God. Now I want you to think about Jesus. Jesus, as far as we know, never wrote anything down except to scribble in the dirt when they were bringing him the woman who was caught in adultery. That's the only indication we have that Jesus wrote anything ever. We knew that he knew how to read and write because he could read the scrolls. But there's no indication he wrote anything at all. Everything we have about Jesus was written by others, and they were written decades later. Nothing that was even contemporaneous. Maybe there were some, but they don't exist anymore, so we don't know for sure. But he never wrote anything down. He never left us a, 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 a stated theology. He never left any rules for how to live in community. All of his followers did those things, but he didn't do those at all. He was concerned with heart-to-heart communication. He was concerned with something being absolutely present and active in every moment and guiding our choices in a way that was not conducive to being posted on a wall. He understood that difference. And so, are you starting to see the thread of meaning between those stories, unsatisfying stories, I was going to say, at the beginning that we talked? And how these are all giving us a principle that we can begin to use. Yitzhak, Isaac, had become an idol to Abraham. He was the child of promise. He was the one that that God had miraculously given to him to further his promise to Isaac. But Yitzhak became the symbol of all that in such a solid way that the only way that he was really going to be the father of faith to his people was if Isaac was removed. And that he could see that even if Isaac were removed, the promises of God would never come back void. They were going to motor on through no matter what, even if all visible means of support, as far as he knew, were removed. It wasn't that he needed to kill his son. It was that he needed to kill his emotional attachment to what he saw as his son and the promise there. And as soon as he was ready to do that, that moment on Mount Moriah, when he is ready to kill Yitzhak, is the moment interiorly where Abraham takes that leap of faith, where Abraham turns that corner and becomes the true father of our faith. And he realizes that his people are not flesh and blood descendants. They are descendants of faith. And he has billions of them, right? In three different religions. Huge change there. Moses had become idle to his people. Whether Moses meant to claim the glory of, of the water from the rock or not, the truth of the matter is the people looked to Moses instead of God. By this time, after 40 years, he was the face. He was the prophet. He was the one they looked to, and they were no longer empowered to look beyond him to have relationship with Yahweh God themselves. He had to be removed so that the people, as they moved in and occupied the land, would have the ability to have that kind of personal relationship. 
Moses had to go, even though he served his God well. And with Jesus, Jesus had become idle to his followers in exactly the same way. They were drafting after him. They were hanging on to his coattails. They were so imprinted with their physical friend that they didn't still, still didn't understand what he was about. And they didn't have the power that he knew that they could have in and of themselves to continue his work after he was gone. It was to their advantage. It was necessary for him to go. Not so that the helper would come because the helper was already there. That's just an idiomatic way of speaking. But for them to realize that the helper was there for them directly. And it's not till Pentecost, which is next Sunday, by the way, that they finally broke through and understood what that relationship was really all about. But Jesus had to be removed in order for that to happen. And there's one more really interesting little thing that Jesus says, and this is in John 2. John actually has two cleansings of the temple, which is kind of an interesting thing. But in this cleansing, the Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. That's the part we know. But the next line is something we don't know as well. Because in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. And that is an almost direct quotation from Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house has consumed me, is the way David says it. Zeal for your house. What's he talking about there? Now, that's generally meant as a good thing. It's meant as a good thing here that zeal for the house is what is purging the house, what is cleaning the house. Zeal on Hezekiah's part for the house of God is what caused him to do all the reforms and purge everything. And in the Psalm 69, it's the same thing. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and I can move like I need to move. But here's the thing. Zeal in this way, zeal for this house, is going to engender extreme behavior, extreme ways of thinking. This is extreme behavior for Jesus, to walk into the temple and overturn them and to create this scene. That's not something you see him do very often. Zeal for his father's house caused him to move in those extreme ways. But zeal, in this case, can be good or bad. It can be ripe or unripe, as we talk about in terms of what good and bad actually means in Aramaic, depending on our ability to remain balanced, to remain in that liminal space that we talk about. Because it's only from the doorway that we talked about a few weeks ago. It's only from that threshold. It's only from having one foot in one world and another foot in another world, or one foot in one camp and the other foot in the other camp, that we can actually see everything that is going on, that we can remain balanced. Our zeal is what motivates us to the extreme behavior that sometimes our life and circumstances require. But if we don't stay balanced in that place where we can see everyone who's being affected by our choices, then we can end up so far to the extremes that we lose our ability to still love the way that God is asking us to love. 
Now, Jesus moves in this way, but he lived his entire life, his entire ministry in liminal space, always with the ability to see everyone as God saw them, not to see them as us and them, not to see them as enemies, you know, people that we don't get, people that we can shelve off, people that don't matter. Everybody mattered to Jesus, whether they were in the Jewish camp or not, whether they were enemies of the Jewish camp or not, didn't matter to Jesus. And even here, as he cleanses the temple in this extreme way, he still is loving those people at the same time. He could turn around and have a conversation with them, embrace them, heal them, have dinner with them. He was doing what he needed to do, but he still saw them as people that he identified with, that he loved. Can we maintain that balance? Zeal for the house, extreme behavior when we need to, but keeping ourselves in everybody's camp enough that we're still identifying with them and able to love them, this is huge. I wanted to tell you, doing okay with time, a little bit of my story because this is something that was so difficult for me to learn. It, it took a good 20, 25 years for me to finally start to move around. Back in the 80s, I, I came of age in the 80s, so back in the 80s, I had great zeal for the house, and the house was the earth to me. Um, I, I, I was so involved at least mentally and, and in terms of my study, with saving the whales and saving trees and the grasslands down in Argentina, and, um, and then, of course, children and, and poverty. I joined an, an organization called Children of the Americas. I did some work with Save the Children, and I was always trying to say, how can we help these kids? You know, these kids that are just dying out of, of malnutrition and vaccine-preventable diseases, and the earth is dying because the, the whales, especially in the 80s, they were going extinct, and it was policies that started to bring them back. But then it was a crisis, and, and ecology and pollution and water shortages and all these things that were going on. And I was involved in all of those as much as I could possibly be. I became a vegetarian for seven years because I didn't want to be contributing to cattle being raised on grasslands and ruining the grasslands in Argentina and here in the United States. And, and so there was all these things that I was doing, but my zeal was so unbalanced that I was constantly miserable. I was always angry. I was always worried about all these macro things out there that I had no control over. I remember working and going to work in Mexico for a day and the statistic that 50,000 children died that day, because back then that's how bad it was, 50,000 kids died every day worldwide from vaccine-preventable diseases and malnutrition. And how did it make any sense for me to go and help a couple dozen, if that many, when 50,000 kids died? I could never enjoy even the work I was doing because I was still so overwhelmed with the enormity of a problem that I could never address. I felt guilty every time I turned the tap water on. Literally, I remember thinking, and I've got to use as little as possible because, you know, so many people don't have water and pollution and all these things. Always angst, always miserable, 
never finding any peace in anything that I was doing. And then the 90s came along, and I had found my way back into the Christian church, and so I added zeal for the house of the Lord. And I consumed, it consumed me in terms of the study that I was doing there and the search for truth that I was looking for. And this was the 90s. Y'all remember the 90s? I think most of you remember the 90s. That was the run-up to the turn of the millennium. Do you remember how crazy that was? We're all going to party like it's 1999. But as we were moving up to the millennium, there was that rush of possible end times and world crises and catastrophe and Y2K and the computers were going to crash. And so I became so involved with all of that as well as the study of my faith. And, and then I was consumed with conspiracy theories and what was going to happen and all of these same types of issues as well. And then 2000 hit. And my bubble burst because absolutely nothing happened. I remember we were watching and waiting, you know, waiting for the clock to strike midnight, wondering if all the lights were going to go out and the computers were all going to crash. What was going to happen? Nothing happened. And I thought, what in the world am I doing? How many hours do I spend studying stuff that has no value or meaning? What am I doing with my time? You know, all the political intrigue, all the this and the that. And there was something that really ticked over in me in the year 2000. It didn't take immediately, but there was a change in the aughts for me. And I started to remember what Jesus said, and it started to have meaning for me when he said, you will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And for me, that meant there are always going to be these macro issues that I can't fix. There's nothing that I can do about them but I still have Jesus right in front of me. I still have a person right in front of me, you know? Jesus as a Hebrew, as I was starting to study him and understand him, and Jesus as a contemplative finally kicked in for me. I was, guess, on about a 10-year plan of trying to figure this stuff out. But understanding what that really meant, Hebrews always focused here and now. Contemplatives always focused here and now, not there and then. And I began to see my moments, whatever they were, as insignificant or as important as I thought they were, but at least I began to see them as sort of finished works of art. Complete. Done. They didn't need anything else. Because I'll tell you what, for the 20 years previous to that, I saw my moments as basically a construction zone. Everything all in disarray, all the bits and pieces and holes dug and all the equipment around because it was always building towards something out there. And the causes that I was involved in, ecology and world hunger and all these things, that was an outcome that I was never going to actually reach. There was never going to be a finished moment. And I never experienced a finished moment where I could just be okay and take a breath and be all right. That is an exhausting way to live. That is a completely non-present way to live. And so... I see where we're going here as a culture. I see where we're going as people, especially through this pandemic. As I made this change myself, I still work just as hard as I always had. But I was working now consciously for micro-issues, for the individual that was right in front of me. And I actually could see progress once in a while, see something that made sense. But more importantly, I was able to start just enjoying as I was helping people navigate and finding myself navigating better as well. 
It's really seductive to be pulled into zeal for the house, to let it consume you. It fills a certain void for us. It it gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of meaning. It gives you a sense of pride. It gives you a sense of righteousness. But what it also can do, if you don't watch it, is that it can give you a sense of separation between your camp, which is all right, and the other camp, which is all wrong. If we can't stay in that liminal space, if we can't keep that kind of perspective And there's nothing wrong with the zeal. There's nothing wrong with the passion. We need that. And there are times in our life that we need to move in extreme ways. That's just a fact of life. But can we do that? Can we continue to do that and maintain our love for everyone as Jesus was doing? How are we going to know even if we are balanced in our zeal or if we have kind of run off the rails How are we going to know if we're staying in that liminal space, maintaining our love for everyone? Well, let me ask you this. In your zeal for whatever it is you feel passionate about, do you still have a sense of humor? Can you still laugh? Can you laugh at yourself? That's an important one. Do you see your camp when it's wrong and can recognize the wrongness And can you recognize when others are right, even if they're not in your camp? Or is it always just polarized? Can you ever be persuaded in some of your firmly held beliefs? Or is everything just rock solid? Can you actually listen to another person and hear what they're saying? Do you ever ask questions of another person and really want to know the answers, really want to hear another opinion, maybe see another side? Can you possibly do that? Are you angry? Are you offended? Are you stressed all the time? Can you think of anything besides the cause that you have the zeal for that has consumed you, or is it constantly running 24-7 in your brain? Can you ever see the finished work of art in this moment right now? Or is it just a construction zone, just, just a means to an end, another end, Are you always focused on what is undone and can never see what is done? When we begin to realize that our zeal has consumed us in a way that we are becoming blind to everything that we're talking about here, these cues and clues that can tell us about our health and about our balance, then This wonderful cause, this goal, this purpose has now become a hindrance to us. It is now a hindrance to our ability to love, to connect. This wonderful cause that we feel so passionate about has now become an idol in our lives. And so the question then becomes, do you have it in you to go Hezekiah on yourself? Can you do that? Can you go and tear down your own high places that you have built so lovingly and laboriously, maybe over decades, are you willing to tear them down, tear down the Asherah poles, even destroy the bronze serpent that Moses made, the revered image of our own identity, how we have identified with whatever it is that we have made our cause. If we can do that, and see that it's blocking God's love. 
then we have the chance to come back. Today we're being pulled into camps like I haven't seen in my lifetime. You know, it just seems to keep ramping up. And every time we think we've gotten as crazy as we can get, we turn another corner and there's more crazy out there. It's hard to have conversations with anybody anymore. We need this kind of awareness. We need this ability to stand in liminal space. We need this ability to ruthlessly, ruthlessly perform this interior honesty on ourselves and see where it is we really are. And if we realize that we've built idols in our lives, then this deliberate, intentional, wrenching step that Hezekiah took for his people needs to be ours, too, to tear down our high places, come back to that liminal balance, back to the connection that will let us know that we are still in love with God and each other. Because as the scripture tells us over and over again, we don't love God directly. We love God by loving each other. And if we can't do that, we can't love God. Anyone who loves God says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar, John tells us. The way that we'll know that we are in this place of love is how we can treat everyone around us, whether they're in our camp or whether they're not. And even though we need to have that passion, we need to have the balance as well. Our ability to tear down our high places when, is, when necessary over and over again to keep that balance is going to be the difference between us being able to do that and getting lost in the weeds. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our scriptures exactly as they are written. Thank you for not sugarcoating anything. Thank you for not making it so easy that it just became a platitude in our lives. Thank you for the scriptures always having the ability to astonish us and affront us and to pull us into that liminal space that is the disorientation at times. Help us to see it that way. Help us to revere it that way. Let it become living and active in our lives, always pulling us to that sacred middle, always pulling us to that place that feels disorienting and a little uncomfortable, but is the only place that we would want to be so that we can see you in everything and everyone and love them equally as you love us. Help us to do this more and more, Lord. Help us to have that kind of drive and desire to be that honest with ourselves. And thank you for everything that you do to help us every step of the way. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. Never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. This is our time to hold virtual hands virtual hands. If you want to stand, you can stand. At home, you can stand if you want to. But yeah, let's all reach out. Whose Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory 
forever. Amen. All right. Thank you for being with us, everyone. Remember, Tuesday night, 630, Wednesday night, 630, back here at 10 o'clock in the morning for the streaming. Have a great rest of the week.